0: As we remain standing a moment, let's just pray together. God, I pray that through the power of your Holy Spirit, if we're just tired and worn out this morning, that you would empower us. Thank you for what the gospel does. And so we ask, God, that you would do a new thing in our hearts this morning, through grace. In the name of Jesus, amen. Let's be seated. So in my previous church, someone complained to my boss about the gospel. He said, you know, why are you always preaching the gospel and why is there nothing for us? And by us, what he meant was people like him who knew the good news that Christ had risen from the dead for him and saved him by grace and now felt too mature to hear about it anymore. And my boss, pointing out this gentleman's immaturity, very kindly replied, you never graduate from the gospel. You just learn to live in its power even more. And that's what this series is all about. It's about the power of the gospel. It's not so much about what the gospel is, but rather what the gospel does. And as always, we've tried to capture the point in a title, a byline, and a graphic like this one on the cover of the bulletin. This is a generator a power generator. It's a dynamo. Related in the English language to the word dynamic, it comes from the Greek word dunamis, and it just means power. It's very much a gospel word. Power is a gospel word. If you do have a Bible or, or an internet, Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians Chapter 1, verse 5 says, a gospel came to you not only in word, what it is, but also in power What it does. Now, why would this little church need to know about power? The first clue comes in verse three as Paul gives thanks for them for your work of faith and labor of love. To work, it means to work hard, it means to toil. And to labor means to reduce your strength through toil, to be worn out, to be exhausted. Paul is aware that this little church is tired, and uh, it can be very, very tiring to be a church. To be in a church or to be one is an exhausting thing unless you learn to power up. And so this Thessalonian church is, is worn down because they're unfamiliar with what the gospel does, and they're disappointed, it seems, with aspects of their faith. Some of them were wondering if Christ had, in fact, already returned, and they just missed it, uh, you know, somehow. Uh, And other people were saying, well, hang on a minute, if if the cross was a victory, why are we suffering? Why are we being persecuted? They didn't feel very powerful. They felt exhausted. And maybe you've been through something like that. Maybe you're just, uh, as I would say in sort of British idiom, maybe you're knackered, Maybe you're done in. Maybe in uh, in some way you've stepped out in faith during the pandemic. You've grown, come to faith, or maybe uh, grown in your faith. And then as you have advanced in spiritual maturity, all hell has broken loose. And maybe you're tired of it. Maybe something's going on inside. It could be an addiction or a temptation or uh, a confusion or a self-image thing. Maybe there's doubt going on, perhaps. Could be external, couldn't it? Could be your finances have been messed with, or your work, or your home. And maybe a bit like this New Testament church. You've looked at the mess, you've looked at the gospel, and you've said, that doesn't make sense. You know, why is this happening to me? So, Paul, he begins by reassuring them. He says, we know, brothers... Loved by God that he has chosen you. Here's an assurance that God is for you. God is still there. God loves you. And we know this. Here's a piece of evidence for the fact that God is for you. Verse 5, because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power. Dunamis. The gospel generated power. There was something you could see about what it does. The scholar Anders Nigren says the gospel is not the presentation of an idea, but the operation of a power. Now, we can do things, and we can be things, way beyond our own strength, when we cease to operate in our own strength, and we start to operate in the power of the Holy Spirit. Verse 5 says, live in the Holy Spirit. Now Galatians the book of Galatians tells us that the Holy Spirit can do whatever he wants. He can blow whatever he wishes and he can do whatever he wants because he is God. But the New Testament as a whole it tells us two specific things that the Holy Spirit does that the gospel does through the Holy Spirit in the power of the Spirit and that is to equip his church to do stuff and to enable or sanctify his church to be stuff. We have gifts of the Holy Spirit. Uh, to enable you to be or do pastoring, to be a pastor, to help, to encourage, teach, lead, evangelize, give mercy or money or time, prophesy, speak languages you've never learned, interpret those words, heal, and even work in miracles. These are the promises of the plain words of Scripture about what we can do with the power of the Holy Spirit And a little while ago, we did this exercise that the church leadership, we call it a vestry from the cupboard they used to meet in in the 19th century. But uh, the church leaders, uh, they got together and uh, they did an exercise to discover what kind of spiritual gifts the Holy Spirit had empowered them with. And we found that every single New Testament gift was in evidence among a group of just nine leaders. There was one pastor, let me tell you, no one was more surprised than me, that it was me, not even my wife, Uh, because I know not just what I used to do, but I know what I was thinking when I did it. I cannot believe that I am a pastor, but with the power of the Holy Spirit, people can change. That's what we do. The fruit of the Spirit, sort of more internal, how it manifests itself in in sanctification and growth in spiritual maturity. Galatians 5 says, the fruit of, of being in the Spirit and blown by the Spirit and empowered by the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I want to encourage you, if you've been an absolute nightmare to live with during the pandemic, a slice of fruit is, is enough radically to transform your life, and not just yours, but the life of anyone that has to live with you. That's where the letter goes next, What we look like when we're empowered by the Spirit. You know, he says this a lot, doesn't he? You know, we know, you know. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. So these apostles, they didn't just do a YouTube show uh, like this one. Or stand up at the front, spout off, and go home. You know, throw a sermon grenade and run away. They lived there. They knew people, they loved people, they got to know people, they lived out the gospel among people, and people noticed how it was changing them. The leadership is not just static, they don't turn up having arrived spiritually and then just stay there for the rest, well I hope not, the rest of, of their ministerial careers. They were on the move, these leaders. And then verse 6 says, you, the church, became imitators of us, and then verse 7 says, you, became an example to others. What others? And this is why we need to get the Bible open because if we don't have the Bible open, we'll just imagine what it ought to say based upon our own ideas. And uh, sometimes uh, we're not perfect and we fail to author scripture in our own heads. And so let's just zoom in a minute and see what it really says. I didn't see this coming. It's not the Bible I would have written because I'm not the Holy Spirit. And I was expecting this to say the leaders were really great, and the church was okay, and it noticed what the leaders were doing, and they grew up a little bit, and then all of this sort of pagan scum out there saw what the church was doing, and they thought, hmm, I might just think about joining that church, and that would make sense, right? That, that would be the Bible I wrote. You've got leaders, you've got members, and then you've got outsiders, and everyone's on the move. It doesn't say that, though. It says the leaders were operating in the power of the Holy Spirit. And then a whole group of believers started to get in on the power of the Holy Spirit as well. And then a whole other group of believers who had no power at all thought about joining them. That's what it says. It seems there were many inside the church, members of the church, who were living as though they had no power at all. And they lived like this, sort of disempowered, but somehow in the church. They lived that way until something got their attention. What was it that shocked them? What was it that got their attention and opened their eyes to the possibility of the power of the gospel? Weird alert, suffering. That's what got their attention. Verse 6 says, for you received the word in much affliction, in the midst of it, with the joy of the Holy Spirit. I want to tell you that one of the most powerful things that you can share in the church is your suffering, and more specifically, what God is doing for you in your suffering. My vision of this church is to be a place where we become increasingly more vulnerable. Uh, ordinarily, I think our instinct is when our lives are a mess, we try and hide it. Try and cover that up. We kind of pretend that we're okay. That's a very temporary solution. It's exhausting. Being a wreck, turning up at church, pretending you're not. You can do it for a while, but it's exhausting. It saps your strength. More than that, it denies other people a glimpse of what God might actually be doing in your life. Someone joined the church recently. I asked them for one word. I always do. I've got a couple of questions I always ask. How did you find us? What are we like? And uh, I asked them one word just to describe their initial experience of this church. Could be anything at all, anything that just struck them. And and their word was, they said, I think this place is authentic. I can't imagine a better word. Like they could have said it's neat, you know, or whatever. The carpet's clean. But they, yeah, that's not a very good word about a church, is it? I said it's authentic. I can't think of a better word. Because I think someone will be attracted to something that is authentic. And someone with joy in a difficult time is attractive because we all have difficult times. But we don't all have joy in the midst of one. I was talking to a member of our church, Joe Rocky, the other day. And uh, I promise you, I will never share anything you tell me in a sermon, right? When we talk pastorally, that's not just fodder for sermons, it's confidential. But Joe said very clearly, I had expressed permission to share uh, a short version of what he'd been through. So, so many of you know that uh, as a result of the pandemic, Joe lost his job, and he's been unemployed for uh, most of this time, and when Paul uses this word affliction here, it's a brilliant word to describe the experience of what it is to be unemployed it, it literally means pressure it takes its word it takes its uh, name from a word used to describe what happens in a in a wine press or an olive press when a lid is screwed down and uh, anyone who's been without work for a length of time will know the pressure that you feel under to find a job and uh, it's a trap isn't it an oppressive feeling when you're out of work and the the effects of this pressure. A well-documented, not just believers, secular science and medicine tells us the effects of unemployment on your body, on your finances, on your spirit, on your, on your, on your uh, mental health, on your family. It's all very well-documented. The news is that Joe has found a new job, and uh, he met someone last week when he was at work who, like him, also serves on the board of his church, kindred spirit. Like Joe, this guy had also lost a high-powered job, one that gave him lots of prestige and one where he was very successful. Like Joe, he was suffering under immense pressure, and he just let it out. He just shared this immense pressure that he was under with with Joe. And Joe ministered to him. He just shared his experience of how God had strengthened him and and held him through this, this difficult time. Joe was able to admit to what lows he'd been through, during this period of unemployment, and then testify to how God had given him joy and sustained him through it, and how, in the midst of just a terrible year, he had grown in faith. I just want to say it seems far easier to witness to people when you've been through a difficult time than than when everything's great. You know, when you've run out of power and God has filled you up, you make a better witness. No one likes a show-off unless they're showing off Jesus. People like that. So if you're going through a difficult time and you feel the Spirit sustaining you, share that to encourage fellow believers as an example. Filled with the Holy Spirit. Many of us, though, many believers, instead of powering up through the power of the Holy Spirit, they they try an alternative means, an alternative power source. And this is mentioned in verse 9. Paul says, You turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. An idol can just be a literal carving of a thing made out of wood or stone. It can be a spiritual power. But an idol can just be anything at all that you trust instead of or alongside or even under God. If you've got a list with God on it and a thing, that thing is an idol, And uh, in the West, of course, unless you've gone and bought a Buddha or something tacky from TJ Maxx and stuck it in your kitchen, it's very unlikely to be a literal demonic statue that you've brought into your home. But uh, money, success, health, image, followers, likes, subscriptions, uh, these can all be idols in the Western world. And I've argued, actually, that uh, money is not the idol. Success is the idol. And money is the chief sacrifice that we offer to it to appease it quite often, but uh, why is it we like these things so much? Why do we like success and and health and image? I think it's because we believe that these things are going to give us power. I think we think if we get rich enough or we get fit enough or we get popular enough or skilled enough, then we'll have enough backup options, enough reserves to protect us and they might even insulate us from any suffering that comes our way. In fact, all it does is it insulates you to the power of God. These things, they've got no real power, none at all. In fact, what these things do when you trust in them is they block the power of God. So we've been watching a documentary show. It's called Mountain Men. I don't know if any of you watch Mountain Men. It's brilliant. I really, very much recommend it to you. And There's a character on Mountain Men called Eustace. Eustace lives a very primitive life, and he makes his money selling wood. He claims to live off $2,000 a year. And his home has no gas, no electric, no running water inside. He does have a truck, but he tows it by horse, (laughs) because there's no engine or gasoline. So if he ever needs power, what he does is he uses one of these. And engineers do not write to me and tell me, it's not a dynamo. It's technically a primitive magneto, making alternating current more akin to a modern alternator. Don't tell me that, all right? You it just going to spoil the illustration, and I'm going to talk to you for three hours about machines. But uh, he does have uh, a power generator like this one, somewhat like it, caveat star, all the rest of it. Uh, how it works? Water. For you care? Water. Water. Flows, I love it. Water flows down a hill, two miles, goes through a pipe. As it comes down the hill, it generates more pressure. It gets, it gets faster. It spins a wheel at the bottom. The, the wheel moves a ring of magnets around an electrical coil of wire, which then moves electrons in the wire and generates electrical power. And uh, in the show, Eustace gets this massive order for planks of wood, uh, a year's income with a deadline of a day, so he fires up the generator and he starts milling out these planks of wood using a 19th century sawmill, and halfway through the process, the power cuts out, the saw stops, the lights go dark, and it dies. And he looks at the camera, and he knows immediately what to do, and he runs up the mountain. He hikes up to the top of the pipe, where the pipe joins the stream at the top of the mountain, and he just pokes around in the pipe with a stick. It's not a pretty sight. It's not very technical. And uh, as he brobbles around in the pipe, he just pulls out a massive pile of wet leaves and a bit of a dead rat and just goes (laughs) on the floor. The water flows. The lights come back on, and the saw begins again, and the power runs. And if any of that you can picture, that is an idol. That is what an idol does. They're rotten. They are dead. And they block the power of God. They stand in the way of what the gospel does. Idols have no power. But they block the power of the Holy Spirit. And the chapter concludes, this is what you did, church. You turned to God from idols. That's what a conversion is. Don't say, oh, I've never had an idol. You have. You had, you had many till you came to faith, and some people of faith have many still. But you turned from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. That is the power of the gospel. It is resurrection. It is life. It's what the gospel does. So let's pray. God, I just ask that you would empower us If we are feeling weak, exhausted, worn out, I pray that you would empower us. We thank you that the gospel does this for us. It's a dynamic thing, Lord Jesus. And we ask, Lord, if we're exhausted, that we would power up. In the name of Jesus, amen.